Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Luke and today I'm joined by Simon Von Bromley, Bike Radar's senior technical road writer and Jack Evans, one of Bike Radar's digital writers. Jack, we'll start with you. How are you doing today? And what have you been testing for Bike Radar recently? I'm very well, thanks, Jack. Uh, I have I don't do a great deal of testing, but I we do have a review of the Hutchinson um, Challenger winter road bike tires, although, of course, that's not what they're called. <laughs> no one uses the term winter road bike tire anymore. Um, I really like them. Keep tuned to Bike Radar on Friday, I think. Friday, and, ooh. Yeah. Saucy but, teaser. Isn't yeah. that today? This podcast is going out on Friday, so that's today. Could be, could be, maybe someone will listen to it not on a Friday. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been doing much winter road riding this year, Jack? Um, I actually only rode on my outside once last week despite recording a podcast on why you shouldn't spend all winter on the turbo trainer <laughs> simon how about you how's your winter road riding been and what are you testing at the minute i know you've got a big batch of tasty bikes on route yeah uh that will be for bike of the year which is incoming very very soon our testing starting for that but i've actually been also been testing tires but i've been testing the panaracer agilis tlr which is a kind of new summer tire it's not really appropriate for this time of year but we needed a review for cycling plus so i've been doing that and uh yeah like they're generally pretty good all-round tire not quite as fast as the gp5000 in my testing but very light good ride feel easy setup there's a lot to like no time wall option, so zero stars. <laughs> well, in today's podcast, we're going to have a little look what back. What about you, Jack? What have you... What am I testing? The, reader, the listeners rather want to hear about you and the, what you've been up to. The only thing that's ever tested is my patience. <laughs> <laughs> Subbing our coffee. Exactly. No, mm. not at all. Uh, what have I been doing? I've been... Uh, January has been unofficial fixed gear month for me because... Uh, I was quite sick pre-Christmas and I wasn't riding a great deal. And while I think there's a great deal of myth around the benefits of riding fixed gear, I do think that it is a more physical workout riding it overall compared to a normal bike because you're forced to stretch your great big glutes going up uh, gnarly climbs. And I, I think it's fun. It's fun. I like riding my fixie and that's enough. So something to keep a bit of change in my cycling life and motivate me. Fixed gear month in January. In today's podcast, we're going to have a little look back about the key news stories from the last few weeks on Bike Radar, and we're going to get stuck straight in with the news that Canyon has dropped the price of most of its models for its bikes in the UK. Now, this comes alongside many rumours about the so-called great sell-off. Now, we have an article coming up very soon on Bike Radar about this, uh, and we've got some interesting quotes from people who work for the Bicycle Association, which is the UK's leading sort of trade body for cycling retailers. And there's a lot of rumour going around that there's a lot of excess stock floating about in the cycling market. Now, Canyon says that is not the factor. It's more just, you know, many factors influence final pricing, including, you know, cost of raw materials and shipping, many other things which have all changed in the sort of almost post-COVID era. But in short, Canyon's dropped the prices of many of its bikes. Jack, you wrote this story. What are the key facts? The key fact is that the bikes have only gone down by 200 to 400 pounds. Um, it tends to be 400 pounds on some of the uh, glitzier models like the Aero, Grail, Spectral and the Ultimate. So that's only about 5% on those bikes, but 
it's a it's a discount nonetheless, and it takes the um, takes the likes of the Air Road um, twenty twenty three model um, actually cheaper than than the twenty twenty one model, um, and that's the the Canyon Air Road CF SL eight disc, um, which it sort of reverses some of the increases Canyon did introduce then. I think there was a roughly 12% increase across the board. So so it's it's very good news. Um, but yeah, this is obviously related to Brexit, unfortunately, mm. uh, which has put a 14% tariff on bikes into the UK. And that's led the likes of Rose to actually stop shipping to the UK. Um, so it's good news for UK consumers, but we're not sure what it means for um, Canyon's worldwide sales. And does that come with any kind of changes to specs, do you know, or is it just a sort of flat decrease, essentially, for like-for-like bikes? Yeah, the, the um, it, it's on existing bikes, so it's um, it, it, we, we, we're yet to see whether it'll affect fu- um, yeah, future models coming out. Um, but yeah, the bikes haven't changed, just the prices have gone down slightly. Um, yeah, £400 across um, some of the... yeah. Admittedly, quite expensive, ten thousand pound bikes. Yes, I think four hundred pounds is contextually probably not the biggest concern in the world for those buying ten thousand pound bikes. Simon, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's obviously you know kind of a, it's obviously going to be kind of welcome news in, in a kind of era when you know inflation has been you know just just across the cycling industry has been a really big problem, and it's one of the things that obviously our audience loves to tell us how upset they are about um, bike prices getting a bit out of hand in recent years. So, you know, I wonder if after the kind of, as Jack mentioned, you know, the kind of the price rises from Brexit and inflation in general and, and you know, things like that, if, if we're seeing a bit of um, a contraction again, you know, as basically inflation has gone up, people have less disposable income, you know, thanks to the kind of energy crisis, especially in the UK and, and other related things. And so, you know, bike brands, I wonder if bike brands are simply feeling the pressure of people who are just buying less expensive bikes. Well, I think that's you're pretty much on the money there. Kind of data from the Bicycle Association showed that the average selling price, which is the average price each bike is sold at, not what it's priced at. So like, you know, actual data for sales has shown that the uh, average price has increased for f- by 40% between 2019 and 2020, 2022. Now, that's not across all categories. For things like uh, carbon road bikes and mountain bikes, there's still very high demand and that's sort of driving up prices. But there's been a slowdown in the number of just e-bikes that have been sold, though apparently an increase in e-cargo bikes. But according to John Worthington, he's heard that there is excess stock around the mid to low range of bikes across many, many retailers. And I think we're going to see a significant shift or more bikes being sold at lower prices. Now, likes of Specialized in Canada at this stage have also dropped prices. They made an announcement about that on their Instagram. And speaking to Bike Radar, our Specialized spokesperson told us that they were excited with the work our worldwide team is focused on that will benefit riders. And there was more information to come. Slightly cryptic, but essentially hinting that there will be price drops coming from Specialized and possibly others. Yeah, and I think this it's funny because our kind of off the record, you know, we talk to bike brands a lot and um, off the record in, in kind of recent months, a lot of brands have said to us, well, you know, there are a few brands out there who have, you know, they've got too much inventory. They're going gonna to be a big stock sell-off. Of course, no one wanted to admit to being one of those brands. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like it, it, we've heard from a few people and I know Carlton Reed has, has tweeted about it mm. and on and Carlton Reed is a, you know, a kind of a very prominent bike journalist here in the UK and um yeah, there could be uh, a flood of kind of inventory hitting the market, basically from people who you know, ordered masses of stuff during the kind of COVID crisis when demand was really high. You know, now we've come out of that and people are 
not as many people seem to be interested in cycling for the long term, which is, you know, perhaps disappointing. But yeah, it might leave brands, uh, you know, a little bit exposed to market forces, might we say. So, um, you know, yeah, on the one hand, that could mean that their you know, prices will come down and that'd be good for people who are interested in buying, buying things. But of course, it also puts pressures on brands. And, you know, we, we've seen a kind of around the place that you know, brands are not immune to the effects of inflation. You know, Strava's had to put up its prices recently. You know, Canyon did put up its prices, mm. not just, you know, profiteering, but because... because stuff's of, more expensive. Stuff's more expensive, exactly. So, you know, there is a kind of double-edged sword to this where if brands are having to drop prices to attract more business, you know, that that typically means taking a cut to their profit margin and hopefully it doesn't affect jobs, but, you know, we don't know. I think it's also worth noting that Canyon is a bike company that can afford to do this, whereas some smaller independent bike brands might not be able to afford to uh, reduce prices. So um, Canyon sales are up 36% in the first nine months of 2022, according to the Financial Times. I was about to say, it's turning into an FT podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And Me and Jack just want to sound smart. <laughs> and, that, and that's up to a cool 502 million Um in bike sales and that one measure of profit margin on those sales is 15.2%, which is not bad. So, so they're doing quite well. Yeah, I should say actually on your note about kind of the post-pandemic cycling landscape, if you like, um, according to a Department for Transport report, there has been a 33% increase in cycling compared to pre-pandemic levels. It's been quite consistent and that actually jumped up 39% in March uh, around the start of the war in Ukraine when fuel prices kind of went through the roof. So I think there's definitely... Like there are more cyclists out there than there were a couple of years ago, but you know, I think yeah, brands have overordered. Um, the CEO of uh, Brompton, speaking to uh, Bloomberg, Will Butler Adams, said exactly that. He just outright said that the industry has overordered on bikes. So a deluge of deals perhaps around the corner. And on that, if there was a deluge of deals around the corner, Jack Evans, what bike would you buy? <laughs> well, I've put you on the spot. Um, I have two canyons, so probably not another canyon. <laughs> despite the despite, despite the price cut, yeah. <laughs> uh, Simon, go on. I'll put you on the spot. Then, what do what do you fancy? Uh, I well, I think you know, I I don't think this is going to affect the kind of high high end carbon road bikes. I think you know, supply of Shimano mm. is, and, and group sets is still going to be a problem. What I'd really like, I actually would love a kind of like family, uh, like a real proper family commuter bike, family wagon. Yeah, family a dad wagon. That, mm. that would be amazing. Maybe with a you know a, an assisted dad wagon, something with yeah big chunky tires, loads of practicality. You can ferry my little one and me around them pick up the shopping and all that stuff. That'd be amazing. I was threatening to have Jack testing as of yet unreleased, I might add, cargo bike that's coming quite soon. I'd quite like to see you pushing the limits of how many tins of chickpeas you can take back from Aldi <laughs> in a future test. <laughs> I could take my 1950s uh, record player to get rewired up in up in Bearwood, which is a fair way from... Um, take it wow. to Jack. Jack will rewire. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Wow, I can't imagine a more smug combo, an e-bike <laughs> with a vinyl <laughs> record player in the front. Anyway, we are are going to have a good long read on bike prices as a whole keep your eyes peeled on bike radar for that it will be a very good one lots of interesting data in there but we move on from bumpy brain thinking about bike prices onto something a little bit more amusing simon yesterday as of the time we're recording this podcast pock released a pair of aerodynamically optimized sunglasses what a time to be alive <laughs> tell me what i need to know about these glasses 
you know, on the, on the face of it, this sounds a bit silly. And obviously, we had a few comments sort of saying like, you know, this, this is ridiculous. It's going too far. But it's kind of like anything, right? If you're going to have sunglasses designed for road racing and things like that, then why why not aerodynamically optimize them? You know, I, it, it's kind of, you know, it's a marginal gain. Poco said that you know, initially in the press release, they didn't tell us exactly how much was saved. They just sort of says, you know, we're seeing... What savings? I was like, oh, how many? What's Bromley prodding the bear? <laughs> yeah, how many? And they sort of said, well, it, you know, we don't want to put a s- specific figure on it because obviously, you know, it, it would depend on position on more than your anything else. Position, yeah. You know, what kind of body shape you have, what helmet you're wearing, all that stuff. But how they, big your head is? Yeah, they would. They said, but we're typically seeing kind of low single digit watt savings at around forty kilometers per hour. Now that doesn't seem unrealistic to me. If you're going to get two you know, one or two watts out of this, you know, it's it's not going to change your life. It's not going to change your race results. But it's like anything, you know, it's a marginal gain. If you're going to be wearing sunglasses for your, for your road racing, why not have aerodynamically optimized ones? Did Pox say which sunglasses it had compared these ones to? Yes, it did. Uh, but, and, and obviously the kind of key thing is because Basically, the way these de- are designed is they're designed in uh, CFD modeling, which is a kind of like you know, computer aerodynamics program. They haven't they haven't designed these using a kind of like a wind tunnel or track mm-hmm. aero testing because they're just kind of too small. The, the resolution of those tools isn't really good enough compared to you know being able to model something in CFD and and that kind of local area of the rider's head and body and all of that stuff. So they compared them in their CFD program to sunglasses from their own range, which, of course, they would already have you know, computer models of. So we don't know how these compare to other glasses from you know, other major brands, such as Oakley or Rudy Project or things like that. As far as I'm aware, there aren't any other brands who have made a specific claim about their sunglasses being specifically aerodynamic. Mm-hmm. Of course, with you know time trial helmets and the like, you do get integrated visors, integrated yeah. visors, and things like that. I think in the past I've heard that it can be quite individual whether a visor is faster. It can mm. depend on both you know the rider, the helmet. It's not it's not always a given that a visor is faster. So I suppose you know the same could be true here. It might not always be a given that these are more aerodynamic for you, and you know you would have to go to a very good wind tunnel to find out. But you know, but that, you know, like I said. If you're going to be wearing sunglasses for road racing and you care about aerodynamics, then you know it, it seems like not a bad thing to me. The, the only thing is that obviously, of course, these are very expensive. They're kind of like two hundred and thirty pounds, <laughs> which is quite a lot of money for sunglasses. Yeah. But you know. nah, it's kind of in keeping, though, isn't it? Yeah. With high-end glasses in general. Exactly. What do you reckon, Jack? Could aerodynamic sunglasses be the edge you're looking for to take your upcoming fastest known time records this uh, season? <laughs> I. Not if they look like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are quite divisive, I guess. They're very pock. Very pock, yeah. Mm. They're very large. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, a kind of sh- it's like a face shield. It is like a visor. They kind of they go mm. right up to the top of the helmet, and essentially it's like a visor. Mm. They'd, have, they'd have to be very wide and big to fit on my face and head. Um, <laughs> so I hope they make them in a large enough size. Um, they have got but, a sort of like an 80s Grace Jones maybe sort of mm, era sort of vibe about them. Kind yeah. of Daft Punk sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you're not a fan then visually? Not visually, but if you're a road professional and you're saving in a in a breakaway, you're saving a few watts at 40 k's an hour. That's it's not yeah. so that, that's That's probably what they, they, they go for across the board. It, exactly. It? It's, 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 I think that's the thing. It's like, it isn't going to change your life, but it's like, it's like kind of anything 
you know, any kind of small aero thing, a pair of aero socks, they're not going to change your life. But, you know, if you're looking for every last marginal gain possible, you know, they, they do add up and yeah, why not? Why not? Moving away from Pox sunglasses, we're going to have a look at Hindsight's new glasses. Now, this is a brand which has been doing the rounds for a couple of years now, but they're ready to bring to market the second version of their rear view mirror sunglasses. Now, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but these glasses essentially have mirrors molded into the outside edge of the glasses, allowing you to look over your shoulder when cycling. Um, and unlike other glasses which have existed previously, they're kind of similar, uh, these ones allow you to look through those mirrors. It's transparent. So, you know, just kind of averting your vision to the side gives you a, a rough rear view vision, but you're not obstructing uh, seeing what's ahead of you. Now, Nick Clark, one of our other digital writers focusing on mountain bike stuff, he's been giving these a little test around town. And thus far, he said the sort of tech works in theory, but he's not really sure how much it adds to his riding experience. So I must hasten to add his very, very initial impressions. Um, he did say, though, that the perception, or rather being able to see behind you, while it can be useful, does sort of breed a feeling that everything is a, f a threat. Now, that's obviously quite individual, but I, I kind of understand where he's coming from, where like ultimately you do not need to be able to see behind you at all times. Jack, what do you think of these glasses? Um, so they seem like the sunglass equivalent of those mirrors people have on their um, handlebars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and seem pretty daft to me. I think you're always better looking over your shoulder um, rather than relying on a mirror like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm probably on the same path as you. I will say that when I ride my tandem, have I ever mentioned I own a tandem? I don't think so. Do you own a tandem? Yeah, I'm Scottish as well. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But I, on the tandem, I've quite often found myself struggling to look over my shoulder just because it's so long and unwieldy, but that's like one use case in perhaps the last 20 years of my cycling life. You also life. ask the person behind you, they can look That's over true, so I do often ask Laura to do that. What do you think, Simon? Would you ever use these in perhaps an urban riding situation? I mean, the, I literally couldn't use these because I wear glasses. I'd have to wear contact lenses in that's order to use point. these, which would just completely... Obviously, it, I think I'm, yeah, I'm with Jack. Like, I, I, I think looking over your shoulder is, as a cyclist is a very important skill because it, it like when you look over your shoulder the driver sees your face mm. and it humanizes you so mm. like it's kind of like a quite important thing to do and yeah i think the you know the idea of having this kind of constantly available information in your periphery feels quite distracting mm. um you know i'm an obviously i'm an able i say obviously i am an able bodied person and i also use like my hearing for mm -hmm. example to to judge when people are coming close to me. And I suppose for someone who, you know, perhaps is hard of hearing, this kind of additional inf sensory information could be useful. But, you know, like, yeah, the fact that they come in sunglasses, uh, I, I, I there is a night tinted version mm -hmm. available, but it's like anything, you know, if you, you know, a normal pair of bike sunglasses, you know, you could, you might go out and it could be perfectly sunny, but five minutes later it might start raining. Yeah. So you're speaking very much from a UK perspective. Yeah, Our I Californian am, yeah, listeners will be but going. But these are designed no. in Scotland. It's <laughs> yeah. a very good point. They are designed in Scotland. Got backing from um, Skinner. What's his first Callum name? Skinner. Callum Skinner. I should know that. Um, Former GB Olympian. Yeah. You've know, got backing. He knows a thing or two about cycling, to be fair. Yes, I should have known that. It's terrible. Fellow countryman, but, you know, a man who obviously knows cycling. I mean, I definitely get your argument. But then in that case, if you weren't, you know, if you were hard of hearing or you had mobility issues, you know, would you not just use a helmet mirror or a uh, handlebar mirror? Don't know. Potentially, yeah. Um, 
We shouldn't cast judgment, though. This is very early impressions. Nick will be doing a full review. You can keep your eyes peeled for that. Haha, <laughs> on there. Maybe, oh, nah, this is such a stretched out joke, but <laughs> keep your eyes peeled on bike radar <laughs> for the full review. Appearing in your peripheral vision. Yeah, something like that. Uh, anyway, for a full review soon. <laughs> Moving on from the world of go fast riding, we're going to talk briefly about Trek's new dual sport hybrid. Um, this is the fifth generation of Trek's dual sport hybrid, which previously was equipped with a suspension fork and had quite a like, I'll say like a traditional hybrid like silhouette. This new bike is an altogether quite different proposition, sporting chunky 27 and a half inch wheels, a rigid fork with replete with bike packing bag mounts, and generally speaking, some quite nice, very practical looking builds. Um, the bike was kind of very popular when we published it on site. Uh, and Trek amusingly said that it bridges the gap between trails and tarmac, but don't refer to it as a gravel bike, which I did enjoy. Uh, Jack, what did you think of this bike? I think this bike looks really interesting. Um, I was impressed from the start by its being just over three figures in pounds and dollars, which is mm-hmm. no no mean feat nowadays. Um, I really like the look of it too. I think it's got uh, Trek's characteristic um, mm-hmm. stylish paint jobs. Um, the top tube is almost um, Demane reminiscent. It's Ooh, um, yeah, it's kind of two thousand and what should we say, fifteen, sixteen era Demane. Yeah, I, I really like the look of it, and um, yeah, there's no getting around the fact that um, for urban riding and doing a bit of off roading, there's nothing wrong with um, flat bars. Um, yeah, in ter- yeah, in terms of visibility, if you're in a more upright position mm. in, in town, you've you, you, it's easier to see what's coming up behind you. Um, I, I also really like with this bike that while it is clearly focused for sort of we'll call them at leisure riders, there are things in there that make it genuinely versatile. Um, some builds come with dynamo lights, for example. As I mentioned, the bike packing bag mounts are great to see. Mudguard mounts, rack mounts. I mean, there really is everything in here. It looks like quite a versatile, quite a nice looking bike. However, as ever. Pedant Bromley <laughs> raised immediate issue. In fact, he was so upset by this, he stood up in the office and talked at me about this, <laughs> this particular feature. Simon, what's riled you about this bike? It has internal cable routing through the headset. <gasps> I just I just don't understand it. Like, so Dave, so Trek Trek says this is to reduce maintenance while making the bike's appearance sleeker. It does, you know, in fairness, it does make the bike's appearance sleeker. I don't understand how this could possibly reduce maintenance. If when you need to replace your headset, this is going to make your maintenance much, much harder. So, I, yeah, I, it, it, it just, to me, this is an inappropriate bike for this kind of cable routing. And we've seen recently, you know, Scott had to recall mm. um, one of its aluminium the Speedster, Speedster models, which has a similar kind of, you know, headset integrated cable routing. Now, Trek hasn't had problems like that in the past, but... You know, mm. doing this sort of thing, I just, I just, I, I, it You know, it makes complete sense to me on a high-end race bike where you know every watt counts. We've already talked about that. Like, but on a kind of bike like this, designed for kind of simple, practical cycling, mm. it just seems absolutely mad to me. And I, and I, and I just don't understand it because otherwise, I, I agree with both of what you said. I think this looks like a fantastic bike, mm. but this for me, I would not buy this bike. I, I was kind of ready and rearing coming into the podcast to say like, well, do you not think maybe people who are buying this bike probably aren't that interested in maintenance? And I think that's probably a generalization you could apply to this. However, like if you're buying a 
10, 15, or even like an £8,000 high-end road bike, people will often also say in the comments anyway, you know, well, these people aren't having to work on their own bikes. I think it is probably the case that most people who will have this bike if they do require maintenance will be taking it into shops. I would just say that yeah, I, I largely agree with your sentiment. It's gonna it's gonna increase the service cost, though, isn't it? Because mm. what what would have been previously a very simple job to simply, you mm. know, pop the fork out, replace the headset bearings. No, you know, for for that person who's only spent this much money on a bike, presumably they're not on a massive budget. This is going to increase the service cost of that bike quite significantly, potentially. Mm. So I, I just like for me, I I I don't I don't believe that the ends justify the means in this case. I just don't think there's a big enough. I don't think there's a justifiable gain. Personally. Jack, you know, Jack, I know that one of your resolutions for this year is to become a better home mechanic, and I believe you're enrolled in a course very soon to do just that. As a, and I, you know, I mean this with no shade, Jack, but as a less experienced mechanic, how does the the thought of rerouting or servicing those uh, headset bearings make you feel? Horrified. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's um, that's not on the menu in my first um, lesson. <laughs> on the home mechanics course it's more about yeah it's more about sort of dry train um issues uh, rather than yeah fiddling with a headset um I, d- I did strike me though is it does this make does this internal routing make uh, the position of the front rack a bit easier um or is it because it's got it's got four it's got um on the ma- it's got mounts on the fork for the front rack but i presume those are going to be well out of the way of the the cables anyway yeah one of the benefits of internal cable routing if you are into kind of bike packing that kind of thing it does keep the cables out of the way that's genuinely really annoying you know trying to fit a harness either in front of or behind your cables particularly if you run mechanical shifting which most of us still do it can sort of compromise the quality of the shift if you're squashing bike packing bags in there and also yeah like it can sort of interfere with front racks though it depends on the exact layout of it so Maybe for consumers, they just like the fact that it looks nice. It's not something I've really, uh, yeah, we often make assumptions about how people use bikes once they've been purchased. Do you know what I mean? We think more about why somebody may purchase something. I think l- more thought is required from all, all of us at Bike Creator about longevity, maintenance, but also understanding how the majority of people use their bikes. If you have any thoughts on that, please do send them to podcast at bikecreator.com. It could be a good subject for a future podcast. Um, and if you want to read about this bike or any others that we've talked about today, there is uh, news on those on the site. Um, now we're going to go back to Jack, who's going to talk us through the news that Giant is going to offer consumer direct sales in the UK. Not mirroring, but somewhat similar move has been made by Specialized earlier this year and other brands. Jack, what do we need to know about this? I suppose from the consumer's point of view, the end result is the same, is that, which is that um, a giant or, or live bike will land in a, in a box on your doorstep. However, the, the nuance is that giants, Giant have told us about is that um, the bikes will first be assembled at your local giant re- retailer or, or, or giant branded shop. Um, so there is a sort of um, giant to shop to you but the end mm-hmm. result for the consumer is the same and uh, giant giant says that um, you'll be able to get in touch with um, your the, the shop that sent sent you the bike if you have any issues with it or for any advice setting up um, it's just in the UK for the time being but um, giant is definitely expanding its portfolio of of branded shops in the UK so it's going to end up covering quite a lot of um, England Scotland and Wales and and Northern Ireland um, and I think perhaps it won't 
it was not necessarily going to reduce the prices. Um, mm. Giant, Giant has said, um, but I think it's it's an inter- it's an interesting change in the bike industry um, where yeah the potentially independent bike shops are going to be slightly concerned about this being not bypassed but becoming slightly less crucial to the distribution model yeah i think you're totally on the money there i think i think it's reflected in just people's changing habits for online shopping like the likes of amazon prime you know we're so used to that idea of service now straight to your door whatever it's it's nothing new the cycling industry is a bit of an outlier really in that there is that still distributor retailer model now we are overlooking the likes of canyon and others who have really sort of revolutionized the market and, and brought that into the conversation and Brands aren't playing catch up per se. You know, there's there's perfectly good reasons why you would want to continue with a sort of retailer led model. But I think what Giant's aiming to do here, and likewise with Specialized and Trek and others, is just give people a different option. You know, some people will just simply want to have a bike delivered to their home, maybe because they don't live near a bike shop. You know, like that. There's fewer bike shops than there ever have been in the UK, and if that means that people are going to buy their bike, then good. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's worth mentioning that the click and collect option remains. So if you do have a giant shop particularly particularly close to you, you could still order a bike online, uh, pick it up from your from your local shop, and then you could really dial in the fit and and get get the mechanics there to set it up for you. Um, so that that remains. But you can, if you're more confident, you can just have it delivered straight to you. Simon, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think like you said, Jack, I think it's just kind of reflective of wider consumer trends and people just expect things to be home delivery these days. Mm. You know, I think your point about not everyone's going to, you know, obviously Giant does have a network of uh, kind of bike shops across the UK, but still, you know, for a lot of people, they, you know, be a, a, a significant travel away. You, know, you might not have a car, you know, it's hard to get to these places, it takes a lot of time. And so, you know, having the option to have one delivered to your door but with the kind of the backup of a, a mm. physical shop, should anything go wrong, is that, you know, I think that's a model that will appeal to a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I would be astonished if basically everyone doesn't adopt this model. Um, you know, the like people, people accept it. I think there was perhaps a hurdle, let's say, I'm making this up, but like 10, 15 years ago with the likes of Canyon, maybe where people couldn't quite get their head around dealer direct or whatever you want to call it, consumer direct models. But now it's established People like it. There's very few problems. I, I, I think it's just the way the industry is going as a whole. I mean, it's just an expectation that, you know, if you read about a bike on the internet, you you should be able to get it, you know, and it shouldn't require you to travel to a shop somewhere. Like, because that's just not what, as you say, it's just not what we do with any other product these mm. days. So which, which, uh, sorry, which significant outliers are there? Um, I'm perhaps thinking of Trek. Yeah, Trek, Trek, as far as I'm, I'm Apologies if I'm getting this wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Trek offer click and collect, but they don't offer home delivery. I'm fairly sure that's the case, and certainly was when I used to work in a Trek dealer back in the day. Um, I'd have to I'd have to do a bit more research into that, but there are still large brands out there who ha- who still go through retailers for various reasons. Yeah. Moving on, back onto tasty, expensive road bikes. Finally, heard the news that <laughs> Mark Cavendish is going to be riding a new bike this year. Uh, Jack, we'll go with you on this one. Tell us what we need to know. So Mark Cavendish's long-awaited signing at Astana, Kazakhstan, was confirmed. Um, 
earlier th- early this week or last no last week in mm-hmm. fact uh, last week now um, we ran a story speculating that he would in fact be riding the Villiers Tristina Filante SLR and that is certainly the case but will Cav like his new bike Oh, great question. What do you reckon, Simon? Um, yeah, I haven't actually ridden one, but I have. we have, you and I have both ridden Villiers in the past. We yeah, made a very good video. We rode down to the South Coast and it seemed like... Pathetic. About, we rode about 90 miles and oh, we were an absolute well, bit. There was a lot of filming to be done, though. People people <laughs> out there don't understand how hard us talents work. <laughs> no, I think, I think I'm sure he'll love it. It seems like a very nice bike. It's got a very, very lovely paint job. Yes, it's a lovely sort of pearlescent, marbly, blue, beautiful one. In terms of build, he doesn't really leave anything wanting as well. Of course, it's replete with full Durace group set, only the finest for World Tour pros. What other tech highlights are on there, Jack, in terms of build? Yeah, so it's... Um, he's... Yeah, it's an all-in-one, all-in-one cockpit, um, which is something different from that you'd seen on his earlier specialised bikes in particular where I think on his on his Venge he was known for, for having an enormously long stem but maybe a 49 frame. So yeah, mm-hmm. interesting, interesting combo there. Um, he's going to have, yeah, Vittoria Corsa tyres. Um, Run, running on Karima. Karima? Mm-hmm. Karima? Who knows? Karima. Someone will correct me. Mm-hmm. 47 WS wheels, a lovely pulley wheel system. It's quite a nice looking bike. What kind of damage do you reckon you could do in a bunch sprint on that, Jack? Damage myself, more like. <laughs> damage the bike, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of his incredible wattage. Exactly, yeah. He's going to snap the cranks off. Uh, just on sort of World Tour bikes, we have got a full guide to 2023's World Tour bikes. There are still, to be fair, some that are kind of sneaking around the margins, lots of unreleased bikes, which was also a theme of one of our upcoming podcasts where we talk about the bikes we expect or hope we're going to see this uh, this year. But if you want to kind of get close eyes on all the tasty new tech that will be ridden in the World Tour this year, head to bikeradar.com for that full scoop. Anything else from my podcast chums before we wrap up? That's plenty, that's plenty for this week. Well, what's on the cards for your riding weekend, Simon? Go on. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do any riding this week. I've got I've got family on family duties, which is uh, a little bit sad. But I am... Well, it's not sad. I love I was going to say, family. boring answer, mate. <laughs> but I've got a lot of bike of the year testing coming up. And I'm, uh, you know... I've been gifted the aero road bikes category as as usual. So I've got a lot of lovely uh, fast road bikes to be riding over the next few weeks. From a purely personal perspective, what bike are you most excited to be riding? So I'm most excited to be riding the uh, Ribble Ultra SLR. Mm, long promised. Long promised Ultra SLR. And um, yeah, it, it, as you know, it, it ticks all of my boxes. It's come with a really narrow and long cockpit and it's, you know, it's just a, a a real a genuine full fat aero road bike as as you might say jack and uh yeah it's 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 been kind of a bike we've been hoping to get hold of for a long time so we were thrilled to finally get one in for testing and i yeah hope it hope it lives up to the hype mm. jack how about you what does your riding weekend ahead look like so it seems like it's finally thawed out in the uk which is really, really good news because you can only do so much on the turbo. Um, that's mm-hmm. not I discussed. Um, yeah, I'll be. I think I'll um, head out on my first go on the the local chain gang on Saturday morning mm-hmm. um, this year, which will probably be a bit of a shock to the system, and then do a do a longer ride on Sunday. What about you, Jack? Uh, I am indulging on Friday. I've got a half day, and I'm going to ride over to Brecon 
in uh, South Wales with Felix Smith, the video manager for Bike Creator. He's been on this podcast a few times. We're going to stay overnight in a cheap hotel, eat burgers and drink pints. And then the following day, we're going to do a little 130k cross Brecon Beacons lumpy bumpy ride down to Swansea. On your, on your fixed gear? I will not be riding fixed gear. I'm giving up on fixed gear. I, I did quite fixed strong... Gear. Still a fixed gear January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I oh. really strongly considered it, but Felix, I think, wants content. to descend, wants to descend faster than I can go. Yeah. <laughs> 150 RPM. I think I That's max out enough. about 35 kilometers, 38 kilometers an hour. So, no, so I will be riding... gear, mate. Yeah, I'll just push a big gig up here and I'll, I'll <laughs> flip my wheel at the bottom of every single climb. No, I'll be riding my good old All City, replete with Caridy's saddlebag and. And a bottom bracket that works. And a bottom bracket that works. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Bike Radar Podcast. As always, please send your thoughts and feedback to podcast at bikeradar.com. Jack, Simon, thank you for joining me and enjoy your riding weekends. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 